Dave's sermon from last week to you, if you happen to miss. Um, he did a fantastic job walking through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel's interpretation, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation um, because he fails to respond. And it'll certainly give much more context to Daniel chapter 4 if you happen to, to miss it. Um, I'm going to be jumping into Nebuchadnezzar's restoration um, in, this, in chapter 4 of Daniel, if you want to go and turn there. But I'll come back to a few verses that Dave was in last week, beginning in, um, let me see if this will work for me, Ch- uh, chapter 4, verse 29, says, at the end of 12 months, he was walking, that's Nebuchadnezzar, on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And right there, a word from heaven comes saying the kingdom will be stripped from you. And in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar essentially descends into madness. He, become, he begins eating the grass of the field like a beast. He loses his reason. His hair grows long. His nails grow out. He basically becomes outcast from society. Um, and people have no, don't know what to do with him because he's essentially lost his mind. So... Let me read to you this from John Golden Gay, an Old Testament scholar. He kind of paints the picture of what Nebuchadnezzar might have seen as he looked off the roof or the balcony of his um, palace. From the palace he might have surveyed, he would have, uh, which he surveyed Babylon, was one of the citadels of the north of the city. It had large courts, reception rooms, throne room, residences, and the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. A vaulted terrace structure with an elaborate water supply for its trees, plants, apparently built by Nebuchadnezzar for his Median queen. His palace stood just inside the double wall of the inner city. In the distance, he saw the 27-kilometer outer double wall. And his inner city, was punct- the, the citadel there was punctuated by eight gates with the Euphrates River running through it. The city had avenues paved of limestone decorated with lions, dragons, and bulls, each emblematic of various Babylonian gods. The point of all this is to say that ancient Babylon was magnificent. And as a a gardener, what I would have given to have seen the hanging gardens of Babylon must have been a sight to behold. Um, But we read Nebuchadnezzar's response to God. Verse 34, at the end of the days... So real quick, essentially Nebuchadnezzar is told, you're going to have these seven periods of time in which this punishment will be dealt out. And we don't know how long. That might be seven years. It might be seven months. But at the end of that time allotted, we read this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, or my sanity, we could say. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. 
for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Y'all excited to talk about pride today? <laughs> Let's do it. Um, of course, when we think of the English word pride, we often use it positively, right? As in a parent telling a child, I'm so proud of you. Or to be the proud winner of a church watermelon eating competition. <laughs> to be that guy, right? TV just smoked us. Oh my goodness. Um, or we talk about being, you know, having national pride. Or we hear about gay pride. We hear someone say something like, they worked hard and they took pride in a job well done. In that instance, we might be thinking of, you know, basically, essentially, we could, we could substitute the word pride for satisfaction, right? Taking satisfaction in your work. Or in, uh, or in the other instance, that pride really just means that someone's happy to be associated with a nation or a group. Whereas the parent to a child, all that really means is that a parent's taking delight in the accomplishments of their child, Right? We also talk about pride positively as a healthy uh, level of self-respect, right? At the same time, we talk about pride as a vice. And I think it's here that we should be quick to say that just as everyone in the church is not humble, everyone in the world is not prideful. I know many unbelievers who are not prideful. They're humble. They're quick to listen. They don't have an inflated view of themselves. And so in the same way that the church is not immune to pride, the world's not immune to humility. I want to be clear about that. So what does the scripture say about pride? Well, there is only one instance in the Bible in which the word pride might be used positively. And that's um, coming to us from 2 Chronicles 17.6 for you Bible nerds out there. But other than that, Unless I'm missing something, and that's possible, of course, um, the Old and New Testament only really speaks of pride as a vice and as a sin and a great enemy to your soul. That's what it does. So what is pride? As, as a sin, pride's a difficult word to, to define in some ways. Um, pride is maybe best defined by the way it manifests itself and the things that it produces in us. Simon Chan says this, pride manifests itself in self-sufficiency, exaggerated ideas of one's own virtues, abilities, or importance. It puts others down to, in order to exalt the self. It produces presumption, a false estimate of oneself, ambition, an inordinate love of honor and authority, and vanity, an inordinate desire to be well thought of. So, when we ask the question, how did Nebuchadnezzar display pride? You know, there's the immediate context, which is the pride of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Um, if we kind of look at, from a narrative approach, his pride's been on display for multiple chapters now. We can go back to chapter 3. And this is after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerge unscathed from the fiery furnace. We read this. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything bad, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there's no other God who can rescue in this way. Okay, on this. Do you guys know what a power move is? A power move is a, is a, is a quippy saying or a tactic meant to give you the edge in a social uh, setting. Um, online comedians Hamish and Andy collected this, uh, some of their favorite power moves from their uh, fans. I'm going to read to you some of them, just for fun. All right, ready? Power move. Whenever you walk out of a room, select an individual and say, I'm leaving you in charge. <laughs> power move. I like this one a lot. <laughs> Using finger quotations when referring to someone's job title. <laughs> Look, I know you're the floor manager, but... Power move. When sneezing, when someone sneezes more than twice, wait for them to sneeze again before saying firmly, that's your last one. <laughs> Power move. When you sit down to eat, ask someone at the table whether or not they've washed their hands. <laughs> that's actually like one of my greatest fears. That someone's going to ask me if I washed my hands or not, if I hadn't. Um, all right, power move. When you're at a crosswalk, Anticipate the green man and start walking before it goes off. Then turning to those behind you, say, all right, guys, follow me. <laughs> That's one that I would totally try. Because it's like, these are strangers. I'll never see them again. You know. All right, guys, follow me. <laughs> like, it's over after that. Um, all right, last power move. When you're meeting someone for the first time that you've been told about, say to them, oh, I thought you'd be taller. That one's a little bit mean. They're actually all kind of mean. All right, so although it's no joke, Nebuchadnezzar's royal decree that he'll rip off the limbs and burn down the homes of anyone who says anything mean against their God is totally a power move. That's all it is, right? Uh, because when God delivers these three men from the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar's got to think fast in order to save face and reassert his dominance in the room. Because everyone's standing around, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just gaping at the fact that they're not even, they don't even smell like smoke. And you've got all these people, I mean, the satraps, the prefects, the, the governors, the king's counselors, the most important people in Nebuchadnezzar's government are there beholding this. And Nebuchadnezzar had promised death by furnace to anyone who didn't bow down to his golden image. And now here they are. And so Nebuchadnezzar is forced to acknowledge the power of their God, because he has no choice. But then he immediately follows it up with, hey, guess what, guys? If anyone says anything bad against their God, I'll rip off their limbs and burn down their homes. Yeah, right? So that's, that's what we have. That's, it's not humility. He doesn't repent after chapter 3 by any stretch. That comes only in chapter 4. So what kind of pride does Nebuchadnezzar display? Well, going back to chapter 2 and 3, which we already talked about in this series, we see the pride of arrogance with the dream and the image. Just with the, his decree of deliverance after the furnace, the pride of superiority. And in chapter 4, his statement from the balcony or from the roof, as it were, 
Look at this great city that I've made by my hand for my glory. The pride of self-sufficiency, I'd say. And it's the pride of self-sufficiency that cuts the deepest. In many ways, this is that aspect of pride that humanity seems to be universally guilty of. None of us in this room are exempt from it. At some point, we all look down from our balcony, as it were, on the pleasing things of our life and take credit for them. I know for me, I'll congratulate myself for what I've perceived to be the good choices that I've made, but not just the good choices I've made, but the good choices I've made contrasted by the bad choices others have made. Um, or I'll pat myself on the back for having worked through what I've perceived to be bad thought patterns and identify others who are stuck, I think, in those bad thought patterns. It's like I'm aiming for the trifecta of pride, superiority, and self-sufficiency <laughs> and nailing it. Um, all the while, my blind spots have got to be painfully obvious to all. Romans 12, 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. To think with sober judgment. You know, I've found myself expressing profound gratitude to God for the goodness that he's put in my life. And the next day, standing up, looking down and saying, look what I've built. And I think we all do that, right? Look at, look at my hanging gardens. But the gospel of Jesus Christ destroys all our balconies and brings you to the earth. And it's there you realize you were never more than 100 feet off the ground anyway, far beneath the king of heaven. And it's in the dust that you and I are made ready for the work of grace. That's why Calvin once said this. If you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, first, second, third, and always, I would answer humility. Because Calvin realized that a sinner doesn't willfully abandon their pride and come to God desperate and hungry for his work unless they've become aware of their plight and brought to this place. Augustine said this. When anyone realizes that in himself, he's nothing, and from himself, he has no hope, the weapons within him are broken. The wars are over. The wars are over. And this is the point that Nebuchadnezzar's brought to, finally, by the end of chapter 4. Again, he declares, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever been touched by the awesome presence of God and come away saying something like, he's so glorious, he's so massive, and I'm nothing. We're all nothing. That's not a self-esteem problem. 
That's called an encounter with the living God. That I'm nothing is the humility that comes when the transcendent God touches your mortal frame. That feeling of smallness is a beautiful thing, isn't it? It really is. And Nebuchadnezzar sees that in himself, he and the rest of us are truly nothing compared to God. And we need the help that only we can give, that only he can give. The truth is this. In reality, God's been laying siege to Nebuchadnezzar's heart for several chapters now. The pride of arrogance, the pride of superiority, the pride of self-sufficiency. These are the means of his resistance to God's siege. But finally, here in chapter 4, and at great cost, his defenses are finally broken. And he surrenders to God. Faced with great challenges, St. Teresa of Avila once complained to the Lord. And God said, my daughter, this is how I treat my friends. To which she said, ah, Lord, then it's no wonder you have so few of them. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar's response, I think, is very significant in this story. There's no hint of bitterness against God for causing him to eat grass like an animal. There's no, God, that's gross. How could you? That's, this is Like, is this really the depth to which you'll sink to get my worship? Is that the kind of God you are? You're abusive. You're egotistical. Or whatever other kind of accusation might lie under the surface for us when we hear a story like this in the Bible. No. Instead, Nebuchadnezzar's response is, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. All his works are right. All his ways are just. It's amazing, really, when you think about it. I mean, Scripture seems to suggest that Nebuchadnezzar knows he's never been more in his right mind than he is here today in worship before the Lord. I mean, have you guys experienced that, that, that dynamic? We are in worship, whether in a church setting like this or in the stillness all by yourself, you behold the king of heaven, the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. And it's as though you've never been more sane. I mean, I I can't tell you how many times I've just felt that. (laughs) In the place of worship, of beholding. Last week, Dave um, explained that Nebuchadnezzar is urged by Daniel in many ways. Nebuchadnezzar, respond. Um, I encourage you, repent and and, and show mercy to the captives, to the the exiles, the the people that the slaves Nebuchadnezzar had acquired through his wars of conquest. And maybe this could forestall the, the judgment, the sentence against you. But would he listen? No. Yet Dave was quick to say last week, when warned, do we listen? Do I? Do you? And I can't answer the the question for you. I know as I think about my spiritual autobiography, as it were, there's many times that my pride simply made me unteachable before God. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we have to come to that place of teachability. Because as he said, 
God can get you there. <laughs> Those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Sometimes God humbles me. Sometimes I willingly humble myself before the Lord. But either way, it's only in that place that you and I become teachable. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Why the humble? Well, because in my pride, I'm simply not teachable. Only a humble person is interested in adopting someone else's way, right? And this, this teachability, it's, it's a moment-by-moment decision. It's unlikely to be this once-and-for-all choice you made in 2015 on November 12th, 12th or something. Like, I'm going to be a teachable person before God. It's a moment-by-moment daily choice to humble yourself before the Lord and embrace his work. I mean, even now, is your heart pliable before God? Or do you simply want a half-decent sermon before lunch? Which is what you're getting. <laughs> a half-decent sermon. Um, so I'll continue in that spirit. Proverbs 3, 34 says this. Toward the scorners, he's scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. This verse is picked up, quoted in the New Testament several times, James 4, 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The wording is a little different here because, as is often the case in the New Testament, the New Testament author isn't quoting the Hebrew scriptures. They're quoting the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you guys, but what do you think the odds are that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble? I mean, this is really the economy of God's kingdom, right? This is the way he moves in hearts. This is the way he breaks down hearts, honestly. You actually want the opposition of God. Nebuchadnezzar got it. He received God's siege to his soul. The Greek word uh, translated oftentimes pride or arrogance in the New Testament um, is a compound word, meaning it brings together two words, over and shine. So when the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, wanted to talk about a prideful person, they'd be like, that dude's overshine is showing. That's how they said it. Um, the humble in the Bible, well, they're the poor. They're the lowly, the downcast. We often don't use humble in that sense these days. I mean, kind of archaic English, like, welcome to my humble abode, if you talk that way. I kind of still talk that way just for fun. But, um, you know, humble used to kind of mean lowly in appearance too, right? Um, it can certainly still mean that, I guess. And also, humble can mean lowly in heart, meek and lowly in heart. Um, I'll just say, you know, your bank account might be getting humbled right now. Maybe you're barely making ends meet. I mean, inflation levels have never been this high, it feels. I mean, and it's global. I mean, pretty much every developed nation is experiencing unprecedented inflation right now. In our country, inflation levels haven't hit these records in 40 years. I mean, the other day, I was talking to Jordan, and I was like, I don't know, babe. I don't know if I can remember a time when inflation levels were like this. 
and we researched it, and apparently it was 40 years ago. So I'm 35. It hasn't actually happened in my lifetime. <laughs> um, a recent post that Jordan showed me, was, someone said, my gas bill is starting to look like my grocery bill. My grocery bill is starting to look like my Costco bill. And my Costco bill is starting to look like my mortgage. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, Gabriel, I'm just trying to hold on. I'm not looking down with pride on my life. Wonderful. But you don't know the future. Ten years from now, you may be up on that balcony. And you may spend the next decade building that balcony. Finally saying, look what my hands have made. The subtext for my glory. Even if you don't think it. If you're in the dust, now is the time to learn meekness in a lowly heart and to learn it from Jesus, whose course said this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. The Greek verb methete is the word learn which is connected to the noun methetes, which is the word in the New Testament for disciple. A disciple is a learner, which implies humility, <laughs> which implies you have something to teach me. You're the master teacher. You're the rabbi. I'm the learner. Teach me, Lord. And Jesus is saying, learn some stuff from me. Learn gentleness. Learn meekness. Learn a lowly heart from me. You know what's interesting? I think this is so profound. I think this is so beautiful. There's only one time that in a straightforward way Jesus self-describes in the Gospels. He self-describes through titles, like Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God. He self-describes through metaphors, I am the good shepherd. But the only time Jesus in a straightforward way says, you know what, I'm like, I'm like this, is here. The one time Jesus in a straightforward way says what he's like, it's this. I'm a meek and lowly guy. I'm a gentle guy. I'm a lowly-hearted man. I think that's so profound. We might have thought the one time Jesus, you know, self-describes, you'd be like, I'm, ju I'm judgmental. I don't know whatever people think of Jesus. I don't know. But it's, I'm a meek person. I'm a gentle man. I'm a lowly-hearted man. Learn it from me. Learn it from me. In many ways, I realize how countercultural all this may seem. Christian psychologist Robert C. Roberts and Paul Watson say, we rarely see therapists, this is kind of out there just in um, secular therapy, commending meekness or mercy or purity of heart or hunger and thirst for righteousness in the strategies for psychological well-being. By the way, Jesus' beatitudes. They tend instead to try to facilitate high self-esteem, contentment, individual satisfaction, individuation. This is me, that's you. Let's be clear about that. And a sense of empowerment. And I, I'm, I'm not against any of these things as such. Self-empowerment's not a bad thing. Being clear about my emotions, your emotions, a good thing. Individual satisfaction, sure, great. Contentment, yes, yes please. High self-esteem, yes, yes please. But we have strayed from the mark when that becomes the litmus test for wellness. We have gone pretty far from what the Bible would call wellness. A healthy soul, a healthy mind, 
shalom, right? So, you know, I think of just simply the fact that uh, meek and lowly aren't exactly buzzwords in our time. (laughs) You can imagine someone, tell me about your date. What was he like? Well, he was meek. Meek. <laughs> I think you can do better. <laughs> you know, like, like, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, I mean, at the same time, we, we should be clear. Uh, yeah, there, there's lots of good research out there on the dangers of narcissism or how to find signs to discover whether your boss is a narcissist. <laughs> like, check, check, check. I knew he was a narcissist. <laughs> Uh, or if your fiancé is a narcissist, whatever the post might be going around. All that's great. Actually, it's really good. I'm, I'm, not, I'm making fun, but I mean it. And there's lots of great TED Talks on the value of humility. Um, my point is this, is Christians are by no stretch the only people talking about pride and humility. And we should, be, we should know this. So in the Bible, humility includes resisting vanity, arrogance, superiority, but it doesn't stop there. Humility in the Bible includes openness to others, openness to being wrong, not having an inflated view of yourself, but it doesn't stop there. Biblical humility at some point must arrive at the prayer, you are God and I am not. You're self-sufficient and I'm not. Having seen your glory, I'm nothing. And then come the winds of grace. And there's no salvation apart from grace. There's no sanctification apart from grace. There's no growth in Christ's likeness apart from grace. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Which is why C.S. Lewis famously said, Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. There's this story of an ancient desert monk named Macarius who at one time was accused of seducing a young woman, which completely tarnished his and her reputations. Although he was innocent, he refused to defend himself. And then he took this woman in, who was now destitute, and provided for her needs, which only confirmed everyone's suspicion that he was in fact guilty. After some time, the truth came out thus vindicating Macarius. But he fled in order to avoid the praise that was coming his way. And this sounds excessive to us. We might think, show some self-respect, dude. Defend yourself. I mean, I would. We probably would, right? But before we judge them too harshly, you should know the ancient saints in in these stories They saw pride for what it was, as an anti-God state of mind, and not simply a bad habit. I want to come closer to their position on these things, honestly. Julian of Norwick, um, I've been reading her. She's a medieval mystic uh, lately. Fun fact about Julian, actually, is she is the first female author that we know of in the English language. Um, This is probably not a picture of what she looked like. It's a representation, our best guess. She said this, Just as God's love for us 
does not fail because of our sin. He does not want our love for ourselves and for our fellow Christians to fail. We must feel naked hatred for sin and unending love for the soul as God loves it. Then we shall hate sin as God hates it and love the soul as God loves it. Julian would ask, why do you hate the very thing that God loves? I mean, if asked the question, don't you want to love the things that God loves? All of us would answer yes to that, right? Why then do we draw the line at ourselves? Right? God loves your soul. Love it too. Love the things that God loves. I think this is so beautiful. Um, She encouraged what she calls a a natural love for oneself to be united with a humble self-accusation, which as I see it is very similar to what Paul means when he talks about sober judgment, that we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. But God doesn't want your self-love to fail any more than he wants your neighbor love to fail. Both the objects of God's love and affection. He wants that. And for Julian, there's nothing, nothing matters more than what God wants. I mean, I've just been so touched reading her, her writings, how, I mean, over and over and over again, I can't tell you how many times you read the words, God wants, God wishes, it's his will, it's his desire, he takes pleasure in, he doesn't want, he doesn't take delight in, over and over and over again. I mean, Julian was a woman who was just consumed with what God wants. It's just so beautiful. Just, he wants us to long for this. He wants us to believe him when he tells us. He desires us to be absorbed in. God wills that you receive it with joy. It's his wish that we see and know, as well as what God doesn't want, will, desire, take delight in. Dripping off every page is the assumption that God's will is of infinite value in that it is to be treasured. Nebuchadnezzar maybe hasn't arrived at the point where he's treasuring God's will, but he does come to accept it. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Let me go ahead and invite the worship team forward. And I also want to go invite prayer ministry teams to come forward as well. When humble love is allowed to continue, we move from accepting God's will to treasuring God's will. Guys, let's not simply resist pride because it's a vice. Let's resist it because it's an anti-God state of mind. And you and I want our minds awash with God, receptive to his grace, that we look up to heaven and worship the one whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That we would declare together before the Lord, God, invite me off this balcony and may I come willingly. That we would say to the Lord, where I'm prideful, oppose my pride. Break down these defenses Lay siege to my heart. I mean, that that really is a holy prayer. It might be a scary prayer, but if you want grace, it's the prayer for us, right? That I might become teachable, God.
desirous of your ways. That when I say, all your works are right, I mean it. I actually mean it with all every fiber of my being. I mean it. Unite my heart to yours. Unite my ways to yours. Unite my will to yours. As Thomas Kelly said, for nothing else in all of heaven or earth counts so much as his will. His slightest wish, his faintest breathing, and holy obedience sets in. Again, if I can just invite prayer ministry teams to come forward. We're going to go back into worship. If you like prayer, people will be here to pray for you. Specifically, if you're just saying, God, I, I want to be teachable. Um, I want to be receptive to your grace. Lord, as we go back into worship, I just ask that you would do it in us. Humble these hearts, Lord. We love your grace in our life. We want to be teachable, Lord. In Jesus' name.